Near the end of his Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has instructed us with the following words. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now in these verses, Jesus has invited all who would follow him to ask ourselves a question. Where are we looking for peace? Where are we looking for strength? Where do we look for our confidence? Now, it'd be a mistake to assume that Jesus' words in these verses are simply about money. The Greek word translated treasure is actually thesaurus. We get the word thesaurus from it, interestingly enough. But thesaurus refers to anything of value that's been stored up. The word translated wealth sometimes translated mammon in the older translations of the Bible, is the word mamonas, which comes originally from an Aramaic word meaning that in which one trusts. Again, Jesus' teaching in this passage is that we cannot look both to God and to other things for peace, for strength, for confidence in this world. We are servants of those things to which we look for peace. And for Jesus, our peace cannot be sourced both in God and in something else. To put the matter the other way around, we might discover what our treasures are by considering the things in our lives that cause us to panic. Jesus highlighted material goods not so much here, but certainly in many places, because material wealth and financial security is a place that many go to when they want to find peace. They look to those things for peace. Again, to say it the other way around, poverty and financial insecurity often cause a lot of distress in our lives. Jesus has suggested to us that our panic when we have it, when we experience it, is always rooted in where we fix our eyes. Over the last several months, I've been reading the book of Numbers intermittently. And this week I read Numbers chapter 20. And that chapter recounts the experience of Israel at a place called Meribah. When the company of Israel arrived there, there was no discernible water source. It was dry as a bone, and so they were upset. They began to panic, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying what they seemed to always say when they got upset with Moses and Aaron, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Why did you lead us out here to die? Right? That's a recurrent theme. They thought they were going to die of thirst. It's probably a realistic fear. Moses and Aaron brought the complaint of the people to the Lord, and God told Moses on this occasion to speak to a rock 
and command water to come forth from it. But Moses was angry with the people. This wasn't his first rodeo with them. And he was frustrated. And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it with his staff. And water did indeed flow out of it. That had happened once before by the command of God, and it happened again. But God's response to Moses has often struck me as unexpected. And I've read some commentators who believe it's a bit of an overreaction on God's part. This is what God said. Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Because Moses struck the rock, instead of speaking to it, as God had instructed him, Moses and Aaron both were then barred from leading the people into the land of Canaan. These sorts of incidences lie behind Jesus' instructions to all who would follow him in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. And the same reality was lived out in the incident from the life of King Saul that we're considering today. Where are we looking? Are our eyes full of darkness? Or are they looking to the light? Are our eyes fixed on our treasures? Or on other sources of confidence that are rooted in this world, in this place? Or are our eyes fixed on the word of God, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? The question put to us today is where are we looking? 1 Samuel chapter 13 begins with an accounting of the years of Saul's reign. And that sounds like a simple matter, but the verse is actually quite hard to translate. We read, I think, from the NIV today, and that sounded smooth as anything, didn't it? But they added a bunch of stuff (laughs) just to clean it up. The New Revised Standard Version translates the verse more literally. It says, and this is a direct quotation from the New Revised Standard Version, Saul was dot, dot, dot years old. When he began to reign, and he reigned, dot, 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 and two years over Israel. That's a literal translation of what we find in the Hebrew and in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. Most commentators believe that the text as we have it must be corrupted. The text literally says, this is the actual Hebrew, Saul was a son of a year when he began to reign and reigned over Israel two years. That's what it literally says, but that doesn't make any sense. Saul's son Jonathan was already an adult warrior when he began to reign, and Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody. It's hard to believe he was a year old. (laughs) That would be an impressive year, right? And it was also unlikely, I mean, with Jonathan being full-grown adult, Saul was most likely around 40, maybe just a little under 40 when his reign began. And it's unlikely that all the events of Saul's reign occurred in two years' time. That seems impossible. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 21, the Apostle Paul reported that King Saul reigned for 40 years, which is why the NIV put that number into 1 Samuel 13, 40 and 2. They just stuck in Paul's number, assuming Paul knew. So what's going on in 1 Samuel 13, verse 1? Well, maybe the majority of scholars and theologians are correct. Maybe the age of Saul and the length of his reign have just simply been lost, and there we have it. That's possible. But to my reading, I agree with commentators Kiel and Delich that the phrase son of a year was meant to indicate Saul's inexperience, his naivety, when he took over as king. I think what the text is saying is Saul was but a baby when he took over as king. He was an inexperienced child. 
maybe not in years, but certainly in spiritual maturity. And the rest of 1 Samuel 13 is certainly going to demonstrate his uh, immaturity. Furthermore, I suspect that the detail that Saul reigned only two years is meant to anticipate Saul's rejection by God later in this verse, these verses. After only two years of rule, Saul disqualified himself for leadership. Now, he continues to lead, but in this, in this chapter, God takes away the monarchy from him. His family will no longer inherit, so he becomes virtually a judge from this point on and no longer a king. So he lasted two years. He was but a, but a year old when he took over and reigned for two years. The text continues by telling us that after the defeat of the Ammonites, Saul then established a type of standing army of 3,000 men, and that their first mission was to assault a Philistine garrison at a town called Geba. Now, it's not clear whether Saul knew that doing this would instigate a larger conflict with the Philistines, but whether he realized it or not, after all, he was a son of a year, it, it happened. When the Philistines heard that their garrison had been taken, they gathered for war, and they amassed a huge force. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an untold number of foot soldiers. And so Saul understandably lacked confidence in his 3,000 men. So he called out to all of Israel to gather a national army at Gilgal. The Israelites came, but then they saw the size and the weaponry of the Philistine forces, and many of them panicked. Some ran for cover, anywhere they could find it. I just wish somebody would have filmed this scene. It, it, it strikes me as like a cartoon. Hiding, the text tells us, in caves, holes in the ground, rocks, tombs, cisterns, anywhere they can find. And some of them left the country altogether. They ran across the Jordan River to the tribes on the eastern side. So Saul's army was thinning. This wasn't going well. And this is where Saul found himself, waiting for Samuel to come to make a sacrifice to seek God's approval and to rally the people for battle. And apparently, Samuel, we're not told, we're not told when this occurred, but apparently Samuel told him to wait at Gilgal and that he would arrive in seven days' time to make the sacrifice and prepare the people. But seven days came and waited, and Samuel was late. If I didn't show up for the service this morning for an hour, would you wait? Probably not. The Philistines were preparing for battle. Saul's army was scattering. And Samuel was late. What's a leader to do? What would you do in his situation? Well, it depends on where you're looking. If Saul's looking at the Philistine army, he would certainly need to rally the troops. If he was looking at his scattering forces, he would need to stem the bleeding. If he was looking at Samuel, he was probably becoming irritated. In a moment like this, where else would he look than at these things? His eyes were fixed on the moment, and he knew he had to do something. And he was a son of a year, right? He's very immature, so he just makes the decision. So Saul decided to get the sacrifices started while they waited for Samuel to get there. And wouldn't you know it? He certainly was a child, right? Because this happens with parents all the time. No sooner had Saul offered the first of the sacrifices than Samuel showed up. Now, it wasn't sinful for Saul to make the sacrifices altogether. 
Neither Saul nor Samuel were priests. You'll have to remember some of our other discussions. Samuel was most likely a Levite whose family lived in the tribe of Ephraim, but he was not a member of Moses' brother Aaron's family. So he's not a priest. And of course, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, so he too was not a priest. These sacrifices were not tabernacle sacrifices, which are obvious enough because they're not in the tabernacle. Only a priest could make those, and they could only be offered in the tabernacle. What's happening here is similar to what was happening in 1 Samuel 7, which we discussed earlier in the series. As I mentioned in that sermon, the Israelites were permitted to sacrifice and to eat animals outside of the tabernacle without a priest. In that sermon, we read a passage from Numbers that said they could do that. That's already happened in 1 Samuel 9, for instance. But as in chapter 7, something more ceremonial is happening here than simply the preparation for a meal. So here's a quotation from the message we shared together from 1 Samuel 7. I think it applies here as well. It's unusual that Samuel burnt up the whole animal on the altar, in this case Saul, which was normally only done in the tabernacle by the priest. But Samuel and Saul, in this case, were in unusual circumstances. There were no functioning priests at the time, and the Ark of the Covenant was not yet returned to the tabernacle. So it seems to me that Samuel in the first case and Saul in this case found a compromise. So all that's to say that Saul's misstep is not in making the sacrifice or any sacrifice. Saul's misstep was in failing to obey Samuel. Now I'm not sure if Saul understood the full consequence of disobeying Samuel. I'm not sure if Saul knew that Samuel's word was in fact the word of God to Saul. But that's what Samuel accused Saul of doing when he made the sacrifice, was disobeying God. Now, from Saul's perspective, he had disobeyed Samuel, but Samuel said he had disobeyed God. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, recount the encounter like this. Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now we should probably pause to remind ourselves that if God speaks through a prophet, then the words of that prophet are not the prophet's words, but God's words. And I'm not sure if, Paul, if Saul fully appreciated that truth, but God seems to have expected him to know it nonetheless. We too should remember, if a word has been spoken by a true prophet of God in the scriptures, then that word is not the word of the prophet, but the word of God. There's no difference in the scriptures between words spoken by Moses, by Isaiah, by Micah, by Paul, by Peter, or by Jesus. If God sent these folks, then they've all spoken the word of God. What was the source of Saul's failure? Well, Saul explained himself to Samuel quite well. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 to 12, he said this. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul replied, well, I saw that the people were slipping away from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash. I said... Now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I reluctantly did it. I mustered my courage to do it. 
And Saul was right about how much Samuel's tardiness was costing them in terms of numbers and troop morale. The end of verse 15 tells us that when all was said and done, Saul had only 600 soldiers left with him. Remember, he started with 3,000, and he tried to grow that by calling everybody to Gilgal. And Samuel's delay cost him dearly, and maybe the confrontation with Saul too. Saul was not wrong. Samuel's tardiness was exacting a high price. Saul realized that if he had waited any longer, his chances of even holding off the Philistines, let alone conquering them, were becoming nil. So in his words... I reluctantly, Samuel, offered this sacrifice. To put it another way, Saul was telling Samuel, I would have liked to obey, but you left me with no choice. It's really your fault. If you had been on time, we could have avoided the whole situation, but you were late and I had to do this. And that all seemed perfectly reasonable to Saul, and maybe it seems reasonable to us as well. But God did not see it. As reasonable. Rather than debate with Saul about military tactics or troop morale and leadership techniques and all of that, Samuel simply asked Saul a question Where were you looking? Where was your faith? Where was your treasure? Was your confidence in the might of your army? Was it in your numbers? Was it in the morale of your people, or was your confidence in God? If you had trusted God by obeying his command, whatever the consequences, your family would have ruled over Israel forever. However, because you put your faith in numbers and in morale, in leadership techniques, and in military tactics, God has now rejected you as king. God would choose someone who would trust him enough to obey him. That's what's meant by the statement, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. A man who would trust him enough to obey him, no matter the consequences. God had said the same to Moses. When his failure to obey God's word led God to choose Joshua instead of Moses to lead the people into the promised land. And Jesus had said the same to all who would follow after him when he said, you cannot serve both God and wealth. Wealth for King Saul was based on the strength of his army, the size of his arsenal, the approval of his constituents, and the morale of his people. That's the wealth of all worldly leaders. What else do they have? But we cannot serve both God and these things. The instructions of God will often conflict with these things, and the one we truly serve will be known by the decisions we make in those moments. Now, wealth for most of us might be found in other places. Maybe our wealth is in our retirement portfolios, or our careers, or maybe our children, or our positions, or our reputations or the esteem in which others hold us, or our genders, or our ethnicities, or our nations, or our traditions, or our health, or our intimate relationships. I'm sure the list could go on. People look to many things to find peace, to find confidence, 
to feel good about themselves and the world in which they live. May we learn from the example of King Saul that for those who claim to follow Jesus, we must look only to God and to his word and trust him with the consequences of our obedience. As Jesus has taught us, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and look to other things for peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen.